The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Tackling the Practicalities of Antibody Drug Conjugate Therapy for Solid Tumors, Improving Clinical Care with HER2, HER3, and TROP2 Targeted Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PFM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you for joining us today as we talk about the um, practicalities of antibody drug conjugate therapy for solid tumors. Thank you for joining us here in person, and I want to welcome all of you joining online as well. Um, today's panelists includes myself. My name is Linda Ahn. I'm a clinical trials nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, I work in the lung medicine department. I'm here with Dariana Espinal. Uh, she is a clinical trials nurse in the breast specialty at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I'm also joined by McCall Segal. She's a clinical trials nurse at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and she's part of the GI team. So just to get started, we're going to um, examine the rationale for recent evidence of antibody-drug conjugate therapy in solid tumors. So here's a diagram um, of an antibody-drug conjugate and what they are. So unlike conventional chemotherapy treatments, um, which can damage healthy cells, ADCs are targeted medicines that deliver chemotherapy agents to cancer cells. So there are the key functions. We have the target antigen here. It's a recognition of the target cancer cells. You have the antibody, which it's a guidance system for the cytotoxic drugs. You have the linker that bridges between the antibody and drugs and to control the release of the drugs inside the cancer cells. And then you have the cytotoxic drug here, the warhead for destroying the cancer cells. So ADCs, and how do they work? So we all know that conventional chemotherapies can damage both healthy cells and the cancer cells. But ADCs are targeted medicines that deliver chemotherapy agents just to the cancer cells. So they're selectively targeted antigen-expressing tumors. They bind to specific proteins on the surface of cancer cells, and then, then they're internalized into the cell. And once inside, the cytotoxic payload is released. Um, another pro to the ADCs is that there's membrane permeable payload, so it can also attack the neighboring cancer cells, and this is known as a bystander effect. So if you see here, we have a HER2 targeting ADC, and it's targeting the HER2 um, positive cell, but there's also a neighboring HER2 negative cancer cell. So with the bystander effect, um, the payload will be able to uh, enter the neighboring cell and kill that off as well. So this is all great um, science, and I'm speaking to a room full of nurses and nurse practitioners, but what do you tell your patients, right? Because patients are going to be like, I have no idea what you're telling me, and we're not going to sit here and show them these diagrams. So for me and my practice, I do talk about them as a missile, like a warhead. So there's three key components. It's the monoclonal antibody that targets a specific protein on the surface of the cancer cells. And then I have the chemotherapy drug, which is my cytotoxic payload. And then you have the linker molecules, molecule that securely attaches the cytotoxic payload to the antibody. And it breaks only when it's inside, it's inside the cancer cells. So I basically tell my patient, it's a warhead carrying a bomb. It's going to enter your cancer cells and drop the bomb. And I like to just reach out to my colleagues here to see if they have examples of how they explain it to their patients. 
So in the breast service, uh, in the breast medicine service, we usually explain it to our patients in a way where they can understand. And we pretty much say we have HER2 expression in our body. You have uh, overexpression of HER2 in your disease. So we pretty much have this uh, uh, therapy that targets to the HER2, and it goes directly where it needs to go and attaches to it and directly delivers the chemotherapy to the cell. And it's, it's something that they... Uh, like when we tell them this information because it's something that's not just attacking the whole entire body, it's just going directly where it needs to go and doing the, the work where it needs to be done. Um, I like to use the Trojan horse analogy where um, the HER2 on the cells is targeted and then sort of the Trojan horse sneaks in the cytotoxic payload and then uh, the chemotherapy does its job. Um, the next couple of slides, I'm just going to show you some of the uh, molecules of the different um, examples of the ADCs. Um, so this is an example of a HER2-targeting ADC, trazituzumab, emtansine, so it's TDM1. And here you can just see the monoclonal antibody, the linker is here, and the DM1, which is the cytotoxic payload. Um, and here is the example of another HER2-targeting ADC, trazituzumab deruxacan, TDXD. And here you can see the two differences between the TDM1 and TDXD. Um, the TDXD is a little bit more powerful in that it does have that bystander effect. Um, the payload is different. They use two different types of payloads. We also have a HER3-targeting ADC, patrutumab deruxacan. This also has a bystander effect and has a high drug-to-antibody ratio, which is very important. Um, there's another class of drugs called the TROPE2-targeting ADC, sazituzumab govitecan. Um, this is a high-potency payload-targeting drug, and it also has a high drug-to-antibody ratio. This is important because TROPE2 is expressed in many solid tumors. So this, again, is another example of a trope 2 targeting ADC, DATO DXD, and here are the seven key attributes to that. So here's my summary again. So, um, monoclonal antibodies with unique targeting abilities have a powerful cancer-killing cytotoxic agent as payloads, and this provides the antibody-directed killing of cancer cells. Next, we're going to focus on ADs in breast cancer, and my colleague here, Dariana, will be coming up to the stage. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So for my portion, I'm going to be discussing and focusing on ADCs in breast cancer in particular. So targeting HER2 with ADCs, the development of the HER2 agents has been one of the most meaningful advances in the management of metastatic breast cancer patients. Uh, targeting HER2 with ADCs continues to be studied with several ongoing clinical trials um, that can be uh, potential for ADCs and can provide more promising treatment options for these patients in the future. So we're going to take a look at some of the uh, case studies and we're going to look at some of the clinical trials that are right now um, available for patients. So we're going to do a case study also um, before we go into the, the next portion of the clinical trial. So I want you to read this case with me, and I want you to keep it in mind while I'm doing my slides, uh, and we'll come back to it again later on. Um, so uh, this is a 62-year-old Latina woman. She first presents to clinic with newly diagnosed metastatic breast cancer. So in presentation, she previously uh, had a history of node invasive breast cancer. She is ER positive, PR positive, HER2 positive. She underwent surgery, and then she was lost for follow-up. She developed abdominal fullness, 
right upper quadrant pain, significant fatigue, went to the ER where imaging revealed an 18-centimeter liver mass with multiple solid metastases. So she had a biopsy that showed metastatic breast cancer, ER positive, PR positive, HER2 positive, high grade. She had treatment with doxetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. After four cycles, she has 70% reduction in tumor burden. After six cycles, a complete response in the liver um, was shown. And after she developed neuropathy and edema, they dropped the doxetaxel, but the trastuzumab and pertuzumab continue, and they actually added a neuromatose inhibitor as well. 20 months later, she has progression in the liver with a new one centimeter metastasis and as well as new lung metastases. So just keep in mind this case while we go through our slides. Okay, so now we're gonna go into our clinical trials. So for the Destiny Breast 01 uh, trial, it's a phase two study of trastuzumab derusicant in HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer patients. So for this trial, we looked at 184 patients, and they all um, had a medium line of therapy of six lines in the past. They were all HER2 positive patients that received TDM1 in the past. The first part of this trial looked at three different doses, and when they found the recommended dose of 5.4 milligrams per kilograms, they moved on to the part two of this uh, trial. The part two looked at the 5.4 milligram per kilogram recommended dose and looked at the safety and efficacy of this trial. So the efficacy of it was complete response rate of 6.5%. They saw a partial response rate of 54.9%. They saw stable disease rate of 35.9% a medium duration of response of 20.8 months, and an 18-month landmark overall survival of 74%. I actually treated a patient on this trial, and she was on it for 74 months, 74 cycles of three weeks each. And the only reason why she ended up coming off trial was because although her CT scan showed that she was uh, doing well on the drug, she decided she was complaining of headaches. And we decided to, to do a brain MRI, and she developed brain metastases, so she came off trial. But... She received radiation, and she did so well on it that she decided to go back on the drug as a standard of care treatment because it was FDA approved for her to positive patients. So that's pretty good. So the safety of it, 99.5% of the 184 patients experienced an adverse event. 57.1% were of grade 3 and higher. Adverse events in included decreased neutrophil count, anemia, nausea. 25 patients developed interstitial lung disease. And unfortunately, four patients did pass away from ILD related to treatment. But we took this information and we developed assessments that we were able to incorporate into the baseline assessments of patients coming on the next clinical trials to be able to capture this before it got to a grade four and a grade five level. And we're going to see what happens in the next clinical trials up front when we develop these baseline assessments for these patients. So the Destiny Breast O2 and the Destiny Breast O3 trials were actually developed, and these are phase three trials. Um, the phase two trial, the phase three trial, the Destiny Breast O2 actually put patients in a ratio of two to one. The two to one ratio was the arm of TDXD in one arm and the investigator's, investigator's choice in the other arm. The investigator's choice in this case were capecitabine and trastuzumab versus um, capecitabine and leparamid. So the phase uh, three trial for the breast O3, which we're going to be um, pretty much concentrating on, actually put the patients on a one-to-one -one ratio between TDXD and TDM1. So it looked at both of them head and head and compared both of them to um, treatments. 
So when you look at the trial itself, it put TDXD uh, at a 5.4 um, recommended dose, and it compared it to TDM1 as well. And what they saw was that the TDXD patients did so much better as the best overall response than they did with TDM1, and it actually became a second-line therapy recommendation for um, patients with HER2-positive disease. So um, overall uh, response rate, best overall response rate. So although we can see in this chart right here, TDM1 did do much better with the stable disease portion of it, but TDXD still managed to come up with the complete response and the partial response rates, and actually did much better with the overall response well, as well. So that's actually good numbers for them. So we looked at some uh, drug-related AEs that were seen in more than 20% of the patients. We saw neutropenia, we saw anemia, we saw thrombocytopenia, nausea, vomiting, uh, constipation, diarrhea. We did system fatigue, it was actually pretty common. Uh, some liver enzymes increased, decreased appetite, and the alopecia. The only thing with the alopecia in the breast medicine service that we saw with our patients was hair thinning. We didn't see complete hair loss, but we did see hair thinning and more uh, in some patients than others. So when patients asked me they were going to lose all their hair, I pretty much just tell them it is a possibility. What we have seen in the past is hair thinning, but it can be more with some than others. So it just pretty much depended on the person. So the efficacy of this trial itself, statistically significant improvement in the progression uh, disease, uh, progression-free survival um, compared with TDM1 in patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. It was consistent benefits seen across key subgroups and efficacy endpoints. Uh, the overall response of uh, the TDXD was 79.7% versus the 34.2% in TDM1. The complete response of 16.1 versus 8.7%. And the 12-month overall survival rate of 94.1% of TDXD versus 85.9% with TDM1. So uh, the safety of the similar rates of all grade and grade three or more drug-related adverse events between the arms. There were no grade four or grade five ILD pneumonitis events in either arm because we brought the baseline assessments where we incorporated uh, patients being sent to pulmonology, patients being sent to do uh, baseline PFTs, patients being educated and be reinforced and let them know we need to know if you have shortness of breath, if you develop any upper respiratory symptoms, if you develop any fever, cough, chills. You need to let us know these symptoms because we are able to grab that before it becomes a grade four or grade five. These data support TDXD becoming a standard of care for second-line HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. So the NCCN recommendations for advanced HER2-positive disease as a first-line, patients receive pertuzumab, trastuzumab, docetaxel. If patients have recurrence within six uh, months of neoadjuvant therapy um, or 12 months of pertuzumab, they were able to get this drug at that moment. But then the second line was recommended in the prefer. Um, trastuzumab, durosecan was a preferred second-line treatment, followed by TDM1, and you can also do tucanib, kifstatabine, trastuzumab. We also put a, a, a third line and beyond lines here um, that were also recommended. So let's come back to our case. Remember our little lady, 62-year-old female, that came back with a new metastatic uh, one centimeter uh, in the lung, and, and she had also progression in the liver? All right, now that we know how HER2 uh, positive in breast cancer is uh, being treated in clinical trials, they saw such good results in the HER2 positive um, portion that they wanted to pretty much look at the HER2 low breast cancer patients. And the HER2 low is uh, expressed with IHC of 1 plus or 2 plus 
with negative ISH, and this accounts for about half of all breast cancers and currently have no indication of her to targeted treatment. So is there an opportunity to change that, right? So we looked at some clinical trials. So the Destiny Breast 04 was developed where trastuzumab, derustecam versus standard chemotherapy in her to low uh, positive patients were um, studied. And the way that they, they saw this was the randomization uh, phase three trial. So they randomized patients on a two to one ratio. Uh, some people got the study medication, the TDXT, and the other ones got the physician's choice. The physician's choice included capecitabine, eribolin, gemcitabine, pacotaxel, and napacotaxel. And what they saw was much uh, positive improvement in overall results with the TDXT versus the physician's choice. Um, actually, yesterday, trastuzumab derosicam was granted breakthrough therapy destination for the treatment of patients with unresectable metastatic HER2-low um, breast cancer who have received a prior systemic therapy in the metastatic setting or developed disease recurrence during or within six months of completing adjuvant chemotherapy. So targeting HER3 and TROPE2 with the disease, we currently don't have any HER3 uh, treatment that is FDA approved uh, for HER3, um, but we have clinical trials that are currently working towards that goal. Uh, the overexpression of the TROPE2 is more common in TMBC patients, and currently have an ADC drug called sacituzumab that is FDA approved right now for triple negative breast cancer patients. So in a phase one trial of the U3-1402, HER3 positive for metastatic breast cancer cohort, um, these patients were um, medium line of six lines in therapy, and they looked at all subtypes, HER2 positive, HR positive, triple negative breast cancer patients, and the overall response was 43%. Um, the medial um, was 8.3 months um, a, of survival rate. So the ASIN trial that we looked at um, is after the sacituzumab um, ASIN trial study design, where patients were randomized with the sacituzumab versus the chemotherapy uh, physician's choice. And they also saw uh, overall great response with the sacituzumab versus the chemotherapy. So for the ASIN trial, we can see here the medium um, of free survival, um, progression free survival was 5.6 months versus 1.7 months. Uh, the medium OS was 12.1 months versus 6.7 months. And the um, results from the, this trial, the phase three trial of sacituzumab in HR positive metastatic patients announced to be positive in the press release. So that was good too. So the data DXD um, trial that we looked at for the TROPE2 targeted ADC looked at 44 patients in total, and um, these were all triple negative breast cancer patients, and they found an overall response of 34%. And now my colleague is going to focus on ADCs and GI cancers. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us for lunch. And thank you, Peerview and everyone at home joining us remotely on the webcast. Okay, so I'm going to start with a, a case to consider for gastric cancer, and we'll come back to this later. Um, but this was my patient. She was a 68-year-old female, initially locally advanced, HER2-positive gastric cancer. She did receive neoadjuvant and adjuvant Folfox. Um, she was resected. Uh, she had a good treatment response, 90% treatment response. And um, 
uh, yeah, and then received adjuvant and Folfax. Uh, unfortunately, as we see with about 60% of patients resected, um, she did recur in her lymph node, and uh, she was treated as a metastatic patient, received first line with capecitabine, oxaliplatin, pembrolizumab, and trastuzumab. Um, she had a good response to that. She was on that for over a year, um, and then she did have progression. Uh, we repeated a biopsy, which the initial biopsy was negative. Uh, they just didn't um, catch a spot with cancer cells in it. And uh, we were trying to enroll her to a trial with trastuzumab deruxtecan where um, her two positivity needed central confirmation. So she was delayed a bit. Um, fortunately, she was clinically stable and was able to wait. So we repeated the biopsy. It showed uh, confirmed persistent HER2. It was three plus, three plus on IHC, which is highly positive. Um, while waiting for the trial to work out, um, she did receive one additional dose of the first-line drugs. Um, targeting HER2 with uh, antibody drug conjugates. Um, so I just wanted to more broadly talk about HER2 for a moment. Um, you can see it's a, a pan-tumor biomarker. Um, we're primarily talking about lung, breast, and GI, but you could see it's in uh, um, endometrial, cervical, breast, bladder, gallbladder. Um, I also just wanted to point out, I think it's interesting, um, so the HER2 de uh, definitions are either IHC3+, or if it's IHC2+, then you get FISH, and that's considered positive. Um, you can see there's a high percentage of, of breast patients that are uh, have what's called low HER2 positivity that are just IHC2+, or IHC1+. I wanted to just talk about also uh, trastuzumab resistance, which is an um, interesting area of uh, research, specifically in esophageal gastric cancer. Uh, there's research that shows that about 20% of cases after being treated, patients after being treated with trastuzumab, lost uh, HER2 expression. So um, it's not standard of care, but um, some of the uh, pr practitioners I work with do retest uh, HER2 get like a repeat biopsy or a repeat endoscopy between, between, treatments, between treatment lines to um, better direct their care. Okay, so the Destiny Gastric O1 study. Um, this study was for a heavily pretreated population in uh, Japan and Korea. Um, they had to have a HER2 expression, obviously. Um, the two prior regimens, at least, uh, needed to include a fluoropyrimidine, which is... 5-FU uh, capecitabine, and a platinum agent, oxaliplatin or cisplatin. Um, they also had to have a good performance status and um, high HER2. Um, they were randomized to either get TDXD, trastuzumab druxacan single agent, or they received physician's choice of chemo, which was arenotecan or taxol, paclitaxol. They also included some exploratory cohorts for the HER2 low uh, patients. Destiny Gastric O2, um, this was trastuzumab deruxtecan in advanced gastric GEJ cancers for second line. So this was after first line TRAS and chemo. Um, it was an open label phase two trial. Um, it was directed at patients in the United States and Europe. Um, they needed to have progressed on a, a trastuzumab containing regimen, good performance status, and the um, primary endpoints were overall response and progression-free survival safety, and tolerability. Um, TDXD was given at 6.4 mg per kg every three weeks. Uh, back, to, back to Destiny Gastric 01, in terms of efficacy, you could see a really nice um, response here with the 
uh, overall response 12.5 months in the TDXD group versus 8.4 months in the chemo only group. Um, and you can see in this nice waterfall plot, um, all of these people responded and the chemo group was much less. And the, the difference here in this chart, you could see that the uh, very nicely shows um, the overall response rate much nicer than the uh, chemo alone. <clears throat> um, so this brought us to approval for TDXD, Trastuzumab-Duroxacan, in January of 2021. It was approved as a second-line HER2 therapy uh, for gastric GE junction. Um, efficacy for the gastric O2 study, which was the second-line single-agent study, um, also showed a very nice response. You could see an overall response, pay, response rate at, in 38% of patients. Um, and this slide uh, compares Destiny Gastric O1 and O2, and you could see how the plots here are very similar in that they all had, um, you know, these patients were stable or, or progressed, and all of these patients had responses. And beyond this line here, all of these patients um, had a, uh, at least a 30% reduction, and a few people had 100%, so complete responses. And similarly, in O1, you could see the plot um, is similar to the first one. Very nice response rate, uh, 43% in the heavily pretreated population, which is important because um, typically, you know, the when we have patients that have gone through all their lines of treatment, they're like, what do you, what do, you do? You offer a clinical trial. Um, maybe their performance status is not great already. So the fact that all these patients that have been pr heavily pretreated and this new novel drug was so successful um, opened up the floodgates to offer TDXD in the second line, and now it's being tested in the first line. Um, so this is a very nice positive study. Um, AEs in the gastric and GE junction setting, um, on the left is gastric, uh, Destiny Gastric O2, on the right is O1. Um, you could see the AEs, uh, sort of what you expect with chemo, um, nausea, fatigue, some diarrhea, constipation, um, some bone marrow suppression. Um, one thing that's not on here because the percentage was lower than all of these, but it's worth mentioning is um, pneumonitis and interstitial lung disease, which we're going to talk about later in greater detail, but I just wanted to point it out here. Um, the percentage is the lowest here, so um, I believe uh, pneumonitis is seen in about like 9 to 11% of patients that receive trastuzumab deruxtecan. So like um, what Diane was saying, uh, you know, you have to educate your patients on all these sort of expected things that you've probably talked to them about already, but also with the pneumonitis, you really want to... Um, uh, stress that they tell you that any new lung changes, cough, wheezing, chest pain, um, chest tightness, anything, um, they should report it right away. Okay. Um, these are some ongoing trials. Uh, there's a phase three destiny gastric O4, which is um, a phase three. So it's a trying to confirm the superiority of trastuzumab deruxacan versus ramucinumab-taxol, which is uh, a non-HER2 targeted regimen, but it is the standard of care second line. Destiny gastric O3, also ongoing. It's um, uh, a phase 1b2 study. It's trying to um, use... TDXD in the first-line setting. So it's a study testing um, trastuzumab deruxtecan for first-line patients, and um, they're getting trastuzumab deruxtecan 
and uh, dermalumab or pembrolizumab in immunotherapy, which are standard of care. And then they're being randomized to either get chemotherapy as well, which is either uh, physician's choice, Fivifu, or capecitabine, or they're being randomized just to get the trastuzumab, trastuzumab druxacan, and pembrolizumab alone. Um, I wanted to just briefly review the NCCN guidelines. Um, this is a great tool for if anyone uses NCCN. Um, this is the um, algorithm for uh, providers, but this site actually also has a lot of good information for patients if you wanted to direct them to uh, more education. But as you could see here, the second line, the standard for, for a long time was uh, ramucerumab taxol, which is not uh, HER2-directed therapy. And then when we got uh, FDA approval in January 2021, the guidelines were updated to include uh, trastuzumab deruxacan and for HER2 expression positive adenocarcinoma. So this was, a, this was great. After um, trastuzumab in the past, there was no further uh, HER2-directed therapy. And when we got this approval, now you know gave us a whole new opportunity to treat patients with um, HER2-directed therapy. Similarly, for esophageal and uh, GE junction, um, these are for squamous, but for um, adenocarcinoma, the preferred regimen uh, standard of care is ramtaxol. And then now we, for HER2 patients that are persistently HER2, it's nice we can offer uh, trastuzumab deruxacan for HER2 overexpression in adenocarcinoma. So let's, to, let's come back to our case study. Um, our patient that had surgery and then recurred, received first-line therapy. Uh, we tried to get her on a trial, and then eventually she was enrolled, and she started second-line Destiny Gastric O2. She received trastuzumab deruxacan uh, every three weeks, and she initiated in January 2020, and she's actually still receiving treatment on study. So I wanted to bring up uh, how does her expression impact treatment decisions for our gastric patients, gastric and GE junction? Um, so if HER2 expression is lost, uh, they're typically not eligible for a clinical trial for HER2 disease. Um, repeat testing, repeat endoscopy biopsy is not standard of care. Uh, it is something that we see, I see in my practice. Um, but uh, a new, a new sample uh, for HER2 confirmation is usually required for clinical trials. So uh, like I mentioned already, the standard of care sec second-line therapy uh, was ramucerumab taxol. It's a uh, chemo. Uh, HER2 positive and HER2 negative, it was biomarker-directed care. If you have to decide between, if patients have to decide between yeah. um, Rantaxol or Chesterspend, um, you could discuss the schedule, you could discuss the toxicity profile. Chesterspend, um, Derexican is um, every three weeks, um, which is nice. And uh, the loading dose is 90 minutes, but subsequent infusions are 30 minutes. So this is a nice treatment option. Patients have, you know, less treatment days, um, have to be on site less, and uh, be able to live their lives um, as, they, as they please. Um, the red taxol is three weeks on, one week off. Um, it's, uh, you know, they have to be on site more. They have uh, more bone marrow suppression, and it's uh, more, and the, the infusions are, are longer after the first loading dose uh, relatively Ramtaxol becomes a longer infusion. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, I find that oftentimes uh, the uh, provider will give their spiel, probably not spend too much time with the patient or give them, um, patients often feel like intimidated to, uh, to really 
talk to their doctor or to ask the, the serious questions. And then when the nurse goes in for education, they'll sort of dump all these questions on you. Like, well, what do you think? And what should I do? Um, what's the, <laughs> how's the schedule? And, you know, even if the provider said it, they were too nervous to listen. So I think our role is great in that they trust us and um, we can explain it to them in a way that they understand. And um, if they're a good clinical candidate, trastuzumab Dorexican is a great option for the schedule and toxicity. Okay, to um, touch a little bit about colorectal cancer, Destiny Gastric, I'm sorry, Destiny CRC01. Um, this was a trial with also heavily pretreated patients greater than uh, at least two lines. Um, prior, HER2 treatment was allowed. Um, excluded patients, uh, you, you, patients were a RAS or BRAF wild type. Um, excluded, excluded patients had a history of, of long, um, uh, interstitial lung disease. The uh, primary endpoints were overall response. Um, and this study also had uh, the primary cohort was for uh, HER2 plus either IHC3 plus or IHC2 with FISH positive. And then they also had cohorts for um, cohorts B and C, which were, were HER2 low, um, either HER2 IHC2 plus FISH negative or HER2 IHC1 plus. Um, so... Uh, so this was, uh, this showed a nice response in colorectal. And what's interesting about this graph here too is that, um, the, the HER2 low patients also responded nicely. So, um, typically, uh, HER2 low is, at least the gastric GEJ is considered negative, um, if you don't have fish positive. So the, the fact that these would otherwise be considered negative and not, um, have, uh, her two directed therapy as an option shows that, um, you know, that needs to be, uh, we need to rethink that. Okay, targeting her three and trope two with uh, antibody drug conjugates. Um, so her three, so these are um, all um, uh, research areas. Um, there are no approved drugs for her three and trope two yet. Um, but you could see here that it's a, it's a good area for research. It's a, it's an area, um, needed for research because HER3 expression, HER3 expression is correlated with both, uh, a poor overall survival in both gastric and colon cancer. You could see low expressors of HER3, uh, survival is here. And then if you're a high expressor of HI3, your prognosis is, um, significantly worse. Um, uh, U3-1402 has, is, um, is in, being tested in colorectal and it shows an effective, it's been, it's been shown to be effective for HER3 positive colorectal, uh, cancer, which is, uh, hopeful given the, um, mortality. Uh, what about TROPE2 as a target in GI cancers? Um, this is also a big area of research. It's important as HER2 is expressed in, uh, about 47 to 66% of gastric cancers. Um, also, trope 2 overexpression is associated with a worse overall survival, so poor prognosis. Um, there's a phase 1-2 basket trial that's uh, testing uh, sacituzumab govitecan now in GI tumors. So this is also a nice um, a new area of research. Okay, I'd like to introduce back uh, Linda Ahn, who will talk about uh, ADCs and lung cancer. Hi again. So we're going to focus on ADCs and lung cancer now to consider. 
Mr. Smith is a 60-year-old man with EGFR mutant lung adenocarcinoma. He was previously treated with osimertinib. He developed disease progression and is currently receiving treatment with carbopem. His most recent CT scan shows overall worsening disease. So we did a repeat biopsy, which shows an EGFR exon 19 mutation, which is same as baseline. So target, targeting HER2 with ADCs. So HER2 is overexpressed, amplified, or mutated in a significant fraction of lung adenocarcinoma, but prognostic significance is not yet fully defined. But HER2 mutations are the most relevant targetable HER2 alterations in non-small cell lung cancer. Currently, there is no FDA-approved HER2-targeted drugs in non-small cell lung cancer. However, it is included in the NCCN guidelines. So if you were to um, give someone FAM transtuzumab off trial, um, it is um, covered by the insurance companies. As of uh, last week, April 19th, ADC trazituzumab Durexacan was granted priority review in the U.S. for previously treated HER2-mutant metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. In the Destiny Lung 1 study, we looked at unresectable metastatic non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. We looked at two different cohorts. Cohort 1 was looking for HER2 overexpression, and cohort 2 looked at HER2 mutant patients. So the most common um, AEs that we saw were pretty much similar to um, the AEs found in GI and the breast studies, nausea, fatigue, some alopecia. Um, Drug-related AEs that were greater than grade 3 occurred in 46% of the patient. Most common was being neutropenia. And we also did see ILD that occurred in 26% of the patients and resulted in the death of two patients. Um, this is the result of the HER2 overexpress cohort as well. Uh, and the safety profile, again, very similar, both cohorts. So in summary, trazituzumab deroxacan showed durable anti-cancer activity in patients with previously treated non-small cell lung cancer with HER2 mutation. It also showed preliminary evidence of anti-tumor activity in HER2 overexpressing non-small cell lung cancer. The safety profile was consistent with previously reported studies, and Drug-related ILD pneumonitis cases were of low grade, but it, is, it remains an important identified risk that requires early detection and management. Um, Destiny Lung One provides compelling evidence of positive benefit-risk balance with TDXD in the second-line setting. There is a new phase three study in the works. Um, it is looking at metastatic or unresectable non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer, and this is going to look at TDXC in the first-line treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, harboring HER2, exon 19, and 20 mutation. And this will go one-to-one -one, um, randomization against Pembro, Platinum, and Pemetrexate. So targeting HER3 with ADCs. So HER3 is expressed in 83% of non-small cell lung lung cancer tumors. The overexpression is associated with metastatic progression and decreased relapse-free survival in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. HER3 alterations are not known to be mechanisms of resistance in EGFR-TKI in EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, and targeting HER3 may be relevant across multiple EGFR-TKI resistance mechanisms. So here's a broad range of resistance mechanism in EGFR-mutant non-small cell lung cancer. 
following failure of EGFR-TKI therapy. So we know the efficacy of EGFR-TKIs and EGFR-mutant non-small cell lung cancer. That's been established. But however, the development of various resistant mechanisms commonly lead to disease progression. Um, in practice, when a patient progresses on an EGFR-TKI, um, we do do a biopsy, a repeat biopsy, to see if they've developed any other mutations. Like MET, you can see in the chart here, patients can develop a um, MET amplification. So it is important to do a biopsy. But if the biopsy shows nothing new and you still have the um, EGFR uh, mutation, the next line of therapy will be a platinum-based chemotherapy. This has an overall response rate of 25 to 44%, so not bad at all um, for platinum-based chemotherapy. The problem is, after your patient progresses on the platinum-based chemotherapy, salvage therapies after this um, have not been very effective. You see the progression-free survival is 2.8 to 3.2 months. So here we have pitrutumab deruxacan. It's a HER3-DXD with a phase one study in advance of advanced EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So there was a dose escalation portion, um, and then they expanded at 5.6 milligrams per kilogram. These patients were heavily pretreated with a medium of four lines of prior systemic therapy. 100% of the patients did receive a prior TKI. So the overall response rate was 39%. And here, I think the most important thing to look at is that the medium of the progression-free survival was 8.2 months. So this is compared to other savage chemotherapies post-platin, which was 2.8 to 3.2 months. HER3-DXD was also associated with manageable safety profile and low rate of discontinuation due to AEs. So you can just see the numbers there as well. So it's pretty well tolerated. And here you do see um, a small portion of the patients did have interstitial lung disease as well. And here, the most common thing that they saw was a platelet count decrease, uh, neutrophil count decrease. And for the neutrophil count decrease, most of the patients did not require growth factors. Um, they did bounce back on their own. What's not listed here is alopecia. I just bring that up because I know Dariana had mentioned the breast patients, they just saw thinning. And that is what we educate patients, that you'll just have thinning. Um, I walked into my patient's room and she was completely bald. She lost all of her hair. Um, so obviously it was very traumatizing. So um, there are that handful of patients who can lose all of their hair. Um, what did help with her was the dose reduction. So, you know, obviously we have these suggested doses, but maybe the, it was very too toxic for her for whatever reason. So we did dose reduce her, and she did gain back some of her hair after the dose reduction. So in summary, um, HER3-DXD targets unmet needs in EGFR-TKI-resistant EGFR-mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Um, it clinically meaningful because the overall response rate is 39% with a PFS of 8.2 months. Um, it's a low rate of discontinuation due to AEs. And this actually has opened up the pivotal Herthena Long 1 study that's ongoing right now. So in the Herthina Long 1 study, it's a phase 2 open-label study, and we're looking at metastatic unresectable non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR exon 19 or L858R. Um, they all had to have had prior osimertinib and one platinum-based chemotherapy, at least one. They could have had more. 
Um, there were two cohorts. There's a fixed dose given at 5.6 mg per kg, and then there was a dose of titration cohort. So targeting trope 2s with ADCs. So this is the tropian pan tumor study design. It looked at relapse, refractory, advanced metastatic non-small cell lung disease. So the important thing to look here is that they looked at all comers. So they didn't just look at EGFR mutant patient. It didn't matter what your genomic alteration was. However, they did have a subset of um, actionable genomic alterations um, that, that included 34 patients. And this is also very um, promising. The overall survival rate was, response rate was 28%, and the uh, medium duration of response was 10.5 months. So the anti-tumor activity observed in heavily pretreated advanced non-small cell lung cancer with actionable genomic alteration is highly encouraging um, with the overall response rate of 35% and a median duration of response was 9.5 months. So this is very important because patients who are heavily treated were running out of options, and this may be a good option in the future. So let's come back to our case. So Mr. Smith, who has been treated with OC and um, progressed on a platinum therapy, what would you give next? So now we're going to be addressing the practical implications of ADCs in solid tumor treatment. Um, so why choose ADCs? Just to sum it up, there are conventional chemotherapies that can, um, conventional chemotherapies can damage healthy cells, but ADCs are targeted medicines that deliver chemotherapy agents to cancer cells. So it's more precise and safer than chemotherapies. So studies have shown uh, impressive anti-cancer activity in different solid tumors, leading to first FDA approvals with many more likely to come. So for all of you in this room, how do we optimally integrate um, these ADCs into practice to maximize efficacy and safety? So our next portion of this session, we're going to be more of a round um, table discussion about managing the AEs. Um, so in talking about managing AEs, um, these were a couple of the ones that we thought that were very important. Um, nausea, fatigue, ILD, pneumonitis, um, diarrhea, ocular toxicity, and decrease in the um, LVEF. So we'll be going through some of the slides discussing this. So for nausea, we recommend providing antiemetics uh, on Dacitron, your drug of choice post-treatment, small frequent meals with high-calorie bland diet, increased oral hydration. So for us um, in lung cancer, we do pre-medicate prior to treatment, with DEX and, you know, the delayed whole aloxy amend, and then we do provide delayed emesis regimen as needed. I'm not sure what um, you do standard. in rest and... Yeah, the yeah. pre-medications yeah. are, are similar. Pretty much the same. Same. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, fatigue, you, you know, supportive measures. Patients will say they'll nap here and there. That's completely fine. If you do find that patients are you know, staying in bed all the time, that's not normal, and they may require dose reduction. Um, I have a patient who actually ran every single marathon in the United States, and she just completed the Ironman in Texas. Wow. Yeah. And she's been on this drug for, I think, a year, um, petrutamad deroxicant. So yeah. it's amazing. So, you know, 
that's why these drugs are so amazing because patients can live their lives and they can function. I mean, I don't have lung cancer and I won't be able to complete an iron. (laughs) Um, So when she sent me the picture this week, it was just so amazing. It was just so encouraging to see. So going back into our polling question from uh, a challenge question from breast cancer, there's actually two FDA approved uh, medications for uh, HER2 positive patients. Uh, TDM1 has been approved since 2013 and uh, TDXD has been approved since 2020. Now when we look at the TDXD, we want to make sure that we focus on the rare but fatal side effect of ILD pneumonitis. Early detection is key. Uh, it's rare, but it's fatal. Um, we hold the drug with suspected ILD until further workup is done. Uh, we refer to pulmonology. We do PFTs. Now we do baseline uh, PFTs, bronchoscopy. We initiate steroids as needed, and we do follow-up imaging as well. So the step one is to monitor. Um, we always, you know, check and monitor and follow up for suspected ILD. Um, we want to make sure that the patient understands that it might not be something that they're even experiencing, but we can see it on the CT scan as well. So if they do follow up CT scans, we'll be able to see it. And if something comes up, we will be able to hold the drug and monitor and, and do further workup. Uh, for sub, sub two, we're going to confirm. So we're going to send them to get a CT scan. We'll do pulmonology consultation. We'll go do base, uh, the PFTs to uh, compare it to their baseline PFTs that they did at the beginning of the trial. Um, and then we'll do blood gas as needed. And we'll, we'll do a, a sample of collection for our labs that we will need to pretty much compare and see the patient status at the time. Um, and the step three would be to manage. If it's grade one, we'll, we'll interrupt fully until it fully resolves. If it resolves within 28 days, we can maintain the dose. Um, if it doesn't resolve uh, before 28 days, then we can do a dose reduction. That's one of the things that we can, you know, let the patient know so they don't freak out and say, oh, I really love this drug because I, do, I have had that. And I, I always make sure that I mention to my patients, if you do develop these symptoms, don't be scared to tell me because you want to stay on the drug. I know the drug works. I know it's going well for you and it's well tolerable and you can live your life. But if you are experiencing these symptoms, you need to let us know. It doesn't mean you're going to come off of it right away. We can do a dose reduction before we even get to that point if needed. So that's important to tell our patients. Uh, for grade two and four, permanently discontinued treatment, refer to the CDC management guidelines for trastuzumab-durosticam. So one of the challenging things for me on working with lung cancer patients is baseline. Everyone has a cough and shortness of breath. Um, so sometimes when they are asymptomatic, um, it's, they're usually found on, you know, incidental finding on a CAT scan. Um, but the threshold, the take-home message is the threshold for ordering a CAT scan if your patient has even the minimal changes in their respiratory status, I would order a CAT scan yes. um, to, to take a look because it could become fatal if you don't treat it. So early detection is key. So that is one of the challenges that we do see um, you know, just really assessing the patients, really asking the questions, you know, is your cough any different, you know, and, you know, taking, taking, walking them around, right, or with the pulse ox on. They're always like, I feel fine. And then they're like, oh, I'm at 99%. And then you start walking them. You're like, oh, my God, you're like dropping to 80. You're not <laughs> fine. Um, so I think it's very important to really assess these patients well. And then just key is to early intervention. So, oh, this is what you were yep. talking about. So, yep. Okay, so the patient education monitoring for signs and symptoms, coughing, shortness of breath, fever, 
worsening respiratory symptoms, just advise patients of the risk and to immediately report these symptoms. It's important to educate patients on common side effects and management for each. Now, we also have the other side of the spectrum with patients where you, you're listing these to them when you're consenting them, and they already feel short of breath and they're coughing. <laughs> so they, they like, I think I'm going to get that because I always get all the side effects. And you're, you have to make sure that you tell them, it's, it's okay if you are not sure what you're feeling, to call us. Just make sure you call us, and, I, and I, that's my job. I will assess you. I will make sure that you are going to be uh, receiving the further workup that you need. Too much information is not, it's not, it's, it's not bad. So just make sure that you keep on stressing that to your patients. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about diarrhea, also constipation. I'm sure everyone in this room is well-versed in managing this. But um, <clears throat> diarrhea was mostly expected, but uh, I think in, in my experience and in our experience, uh, patients had a good amount of constipation as well. So um, start loperamide um, as needed as soon as possible. Our recommendations are two tabs with the first um, episode of diarrhea and additional tab with each subsequent episode of diarrhea, up to eight a day. But, you know, educate your patient that if they're really using that much uh, loperamide, they should call you. Um, <clears throat> you want to rule out any infectious sources, uh, promote a bland diet, the bratty diet. Um, you want to have them increase oral hydration or if they uh, are not doing well at home to come in for IV hydration. Constipation, uh, also over-the-counter stuff. You want to promote stool softeners, laxatives, um, hydration, adding fiber to their diet, um, uh, getting some exercise, walking around to promote uh, bowel movements. Um, with the ADCs, uh, we do see some ocular toxicities, mostly dry eyes, some uh, inflammation, keratitis, photosensitivity. So for baseline prior to starting ADC, you really want to get, um, at least the clinical trials require an ophthalmology exam. And then if uh, patients do start having any symptoms, you want to refer them back to the ophthalmologist to either do over-the-counter, um, you know, wetting tears or uh, prescription um, uh, eye drops. Uh, decreased ejection fraction, similar to trastuzumab, um, the ejection fraction can be lowered with trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um, so you want to get a baseline echo for sure, um, the way you would with tra uh, regular trastuzumab. Um, <clears throat> you want to monitor the patients for signs of heart failure, um, which could be difficult sometimes if, you know, many patients have comorbidities and already take medications for various things. So you keep a close eye on this. Um, you also want to avoid medications that uh, prolong QTC and um, get cardiology on board. Or if they have a cardiologist already locally, you want to um, tell them to, uh, to follow up with them if you see any decrease in injection fraction. So the nursing implications for the new ADC era, nurses should assess for and manage adverse events. We should provide patient education, including about signs and symptoms to look for and how to report them. Patients should have adequate supportive me measures to prevent and reduce adverse effects. So our next portion will be Q&As from you guys. Um, I do have some in front of me. It says, do you see ILD pneumonitis occur mo more frequently in the first three months of treatment, or can it occur at any time during treatment? That's a great question, actually. We um, actually have seen... Um, uh, Patients that do ask these questions when we are consenting them, it's just something that as the more cycles that I'm getting, I have the more potential to receive this uh, pneumonitis and the answers. We have not seen that. We haven't seen patients. Uh, it's not a cumulative uh, thing that they are going to get pneumonitis afterwards. It's just something that, you know, happens and, and it's something that we have to continuously look at, but it's not something that accumulates, no. So that's a great question. 
How do you all feel about treatment breaks? Mm. So this is a good treatment, question. Treatment breaks? Treatment breaks, yeah. yeah. Giving breaks in treatment. Um, I like this question because this is going to bring up, you know, what we don't want to talk about, which is COVID. <laughs> um, we've had a couple of patients who got COVID while on these ADC drugs, and we did have to give them long treatment breaks. Um, in, the, in one of the clinical trials, they were very strict. We know that you can still test positive even after a certain amount of time. Um, the requirement was a negative PCR, regardless of how it being asymptomatic, asymptomatic, and the CAT scan had to be clean. So I think um, the longest treatment break that I had a patient get because of COVID was about six weeks. Uh, and he still ended up responding, you know, restarting treatment. Um, so treatment breaks, I think, you know, I feel okay with it, but I think, you know, you give it too much time and you're giving mm -hmm. the cancer a chance to grow, so. Uh, in my experience, I think if something's working, why rock the boat? I like to keep going. If it's working, you're doing well, you have quality of life, especially with ADCs, it's such a good, tolerable drug. You still continue to have all of your daily lives that you do and you're able to run marathons and why rock it, right? It's working, keep going and don't, don't even mess with it. Um, I think from a palliative perspective, if you have a metastatic patient and they've been stable for a while, or maybe they have no treatment options and a, and a phase one is not really something they want to participate or, you know, there's not something that you think would be successful for them. Um, I've had, uh, providers give treatment breaks and patient, you know, we'll follow them with CAT scans and they'll stay stable. And I, I think, I mean, if patient asked me my opinion, I, th I would promote that, you know, especially in the metastatic setting. Um, to have time to live your life and spend time with family, I think that's important. Um, another question here is, how often do you repeat echo? Oh, I want to say like three months? Three months? Yeah. yeah. About every three months we repeat yeah. echo. You wouldn't expect ejection fraction to be affected that quickly or, or um, yeah, in a shorter interval. And also if they're symptomatic, you should do an echo. Uh, recommendations for managing ocular toxicity. I think we already went over that. Yeah. I think the most common ones that we do see with patients is the dry eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the beginning, um, I, I actually didn't even think about it. Patients were like, oh, my eyes are dry. And I'm like, oh, it's your allergies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you start noticing a trend that these patients receiving ADCs, they do have more frequent dry eyes. So just, you know, over-the-counter, um, you know, refreshed tears, artificial tears, um, and if it's bad enough, we do send them to ophthalmology again. Uh, someone just asked a clinical trial question. Can you explain what is meant by a basket trial? Um, so I think a basket trial is, uh, it sort of starts with one direction with the option to move into different disease groups or to add different drugs. Um, so, for example, um, we in GI, now we have a trial um, for a forget, nectin-4 target, but it was in, in breast, and now it's moved. Uh, they found there's new data that shows it's positive in GI cancers as well. So now, uh, even though it was opened in the breast service, now they transitioned it to GI, and now we've taken over, and now we're enrolling GI patients. Um, another question here is, what is the best sequence of treatment? Um, I guess that would really depend on the disease group. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, for EGFR mutant lung cancer, after tugrestil and platinum therapy, um, if available, you know, pitrutumab, deroxican, it's not FDA approved, so you can only get the drug via clinical trial. Um, that's what we would recommend. 
You know, for breast. Yeah, same thing. For um, so something interesting. I just wanted. It's a good question. Um, the Destiny Gastric O3. The two groups are randomized to either get uh, TDXD and Pembro alone, or to get TDXD, Pembro, uh, and chemo. And so chemo is the mainstay for first line yeah. treatment. So it's a tough call, you know, but if, if you have like an elderly patient or somebody that's frail or maybe has already had um, uh, adjuvant, neoadjuvant treatment with cytotoxic chemo, um, receiving TDXD and Pembrol alone would be a good option for them first line, um, especially given the, um, uh, the benefit seen in second and beyond lines, giving it up front um, in a clinical trial setting uh, is a good, is, might be a good option for that type of patient. Um, for side effect management, like telephone triage and like red flags. So yeah, we don't often, we get a lot of telephone triaging. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the things that we look for? Again, any changes in respiratory status, mm -hmm. that would be a big red flag. Um, yes. And even if it's a minor change, I just want to overlap with another question because someone did say, do you order a CAT scan even if there are small oxygen changes? I think that would depend on if they were having any other symptoms. Like if someone dropped from 99 to 97, I don't think that would cause me to have a red flag. But um, if it was associated with, yeah, I am coughing a little bit more, or yeah, I do feel myself, you know, being a little bit more short of breath when I walk down the block, that would, you know, be enough for me to order a CAT scan. Um, I don't yeah. know other red flags that you get for calls. I think it's important to stress to our patients, too, that, you know, person receiving the triage may not be us, and we are just going to get the message, so make sure they let them know. I want to speak to my clinical trainers as soon as possible, um, just so we can um, speak with them. But if it's, like, on the after hours or on the weekends, and they feel like it's something that they have seen seen a change, um, they should definitely go to their nearest urgent care or ED just to get evaluated, but to, to not to forget to call us, because sometimes they do go to the hospital and get admitted, and then we don't even know about it. So, and they, you know, they they are going to be treated for their symptoms, but we need to know what their symptoms are so we can treat it on and do follow-up follow workup as well. Um, I think as uh, oncology nurses, we're, we're good at um, uh, focusing in on, on symptoms. So oftentimes patients want to uh, uh, downgrade their symptoms and say like, oh, you know, I've been having some diarrhea and they try and skirt past it. And then when you ask them, well, how many episodes and what's the quality and what's the quantity? Um, are you are you eating and drinking? And then they say like, oh, I don't know. It's not that bad. I've had like six episodes of diarrhea every day. You know, so you know that, okay, that's not minimal. That's, let's, let's escalate this. Um, what are you taking for it? Uh, how often? Uh, as oncology nurses, you really have to get them to, to spit out the, the details so you can uh, better assess your patients. And I also want to um, uh, talk about the, the management of the red flags. I think it's important for everyone to be on the same page as well, the infusion nurse, the OPNs, the clinical child nurses, everyone that's taking care of the patient and know that they're receiving this medication to be on the same page. Um, I remember one time I received a phone call from the infusion nurse, like, you know, Miss so-and-so is here. She is feeling short of breath. Um, can you come down and assess her? When I went down, I was like, oh, you know, how are you doing? I know your auto stat is 92%, but how are you feeling? Is this like something that you've been feeling recently? Is it like a, a week long yesterday? And the first thing she said is, it's going to take me off trial. And I said, well, no, it's not going to take you off trial. We just have to do follow, follow workouts. So it's important for everyone else to know the red flags in the patient. When they see the patient face-to-face, are they able to reach out and let you know? Um, and I know, Dariana, you were talking about, you know, calling after hours or not, you know, calling your primary team um, and just showing up maybe to a local ER. I think mm -hmm. McCall actually has a good um, case. Yeah. 
uh, I, I, of hers. Interesting um, related to COVID. So um, uh, as oncology nurses, you know, I think we have uh, obviously a greater knowledge, different perspective than a regular hospital would. So we had a patient that uh, received two infusions of trastuzumab drexican, um, was admitted locally uh, at, a, at a regular hospital in Maryland, and um, he had shortness of breath for five days. And he didn't call us. We weren't notified until his like second day of admission. And this was right in March 2020. So the, the frenzy was everything was about COVID. So, um, you know, a local hospital is not necessarily going to link uh, shortness of breath with trastuzumab deruxtecan. Their go-to evaluations were um, MI. They did a cardiac workup, CHF. Uh, they did a infectious workup. They worked him up for viral illnesses, COVID. Um, they ended up empirically giving him uh, levofloxacin, and they, uh, they discharged him with that on antibiotics. Uh, they presumed he had pneumonia, and uh, luckily, it was case was not fatal. But they, you know, local local um, non oncology hospitals might not recognize these symptoms. So really stress your patients to call you. And if they're in a hospital, call you right away. Um, he was ended up being discharged because of COVID. They wanted, you know, as many pa stable patients out of the hospital. Um, and then when we reviewed the CAT scan that they did, um, we, we reviewed with a pulmonologist and we did determine it was a grade two pneumonitis and we had to discontinue the drug. Okay. So I actually have a question for the audience. Um, just, I'm just uh, out of my own curiosity. Um, how many of you have experience with um, treating patients on ADC? Some of you. You know, nice. the light is blinding me, but yes, <laughs> I see a couple hands right there. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash PFM 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated.